I have said in the past on this podcast that there are certain thinkers in uh, Christendom and specifically in the Reformed faith, thinkers, writers, theologians, who have influenced me and others. And then when you read them and you read their books and you read their works, it's kind of a paradigm shift. I would say somebody like Cornelius Van Til would be one of those uh, theologians that really tend to change the way we think uh, very comprehensively about something like apologetics. And my guest today, uh, for me, kind of fell into that category. And of course, I'm talking about Peter Jones. Peter Jones has written numerous books. Uh, One of my favorite books that he wrote is called The Other Worldview. And when people are exposed to Peter Jones and to his work for the very first time, I think you kind of undergo one of those paradigm shifts where your eyes begin to be open to just how important it is that we understand the influence of Eastern mysticism and Eastern spirituality and paganism upon Western culture and even the church. And so with me today on the program is Dr. Jones. And Peter, welcome to the show. Christ and Kingdom is all about uh, theology and apologetics and biblical theology and these sorts of things. But I'm delighted to have you. It's good to be with you. We got all the technology going. How are you doing today? I'm very well and happy to see your kind and smiling face. <laughs> very good. Same here. Same here. And uh, I'm so excited. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a very long time. And um, your writing has had a huge influence on me. I still remember a few years ago when a good friend of mine uh, recommended your books to me. Um, I, I, I remember when I first read The Other Worldview, I was thinking to myself, why haven't I read Peter Jones before? <laughs> where, where have I been? I've been hiding under a rock somewhere. Uh, I don't know why. But no, I was, I was hiding <laughs> under the rock. <laughs> That's why I couldn't find you. <laughs> uh, but Peter, really quick for, for the audience who maybe doesn't know you very well, um, tell us a little bit about your ministry called Truth Exchange. Uh, what have you attempted to accomplish in your ministry, even in your time going back to Westminster Seminary? Well, I don't have much of a stunning story to tell about my intentionality. Things happened to me, as a matter of fact. I, I was not aware, really, of doing anything significant, to tell you the truth, Emilio. Uh, I... I I went to France, as a matter of fact, and taught in a Reformed seminary in Aix-en-Provence. My first job was teaching Greek to graduate students in French when I hardly had any French in my mind. And so they learned nothing about anything, not even French and certainly not classical Greek. Anyway, that was uh, quite an experience, and I... Hung in, 18 years, taught in French. And um, then I was contacted by Westminster in California to see if I would be willing to consider coming over. I'd sort of reached a point in my life where I needed a change. So I came over with my wife, and we met with the Westminster people, and apparently they voted unanimously to invite me. And I, for some reason, accepted. Oh, I know why I accepted particularly. John Frame was 
a member of the uh, faculty. You know John Frame's name, I'm sure. I spoke to him yesterday, prayed with him. A wonderful thinker and uh, uh, a student of Van Til. So John Frame, very clear thinker. And I thought, what a pleasure to be on the faculty with John Frame. So I accepted. And I did that for 18 years. But it's funny, when I first came to Westminster, they asked me to give a lecture to a group of visiting students. And I did. And it was all about paganism and the culture. And it began to, I don't know why that subject worked on me, but it did. And the more I taught, the more I was thinking not about what I was teaching so much as what was happening in the culture. And Pagans in the Pews was a book that came out on that subject. Uh, it, it originally had another title, I forget. But anyway, um, I started writing, and I started being invited to speak, not on, you know, intellectual New Testament issues, but on the state of the culture. And I began to develop my thinking about the state of the culture. And I suddenly felt, you know, I'm not really being fair to my subject. I'm not really reading all the literature that's coming out. I'm reading other kinds of literature on what's happening in the culture. And so I resigned from my position and just stepped out. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had no support. I didn't have anything. And that first year, I wrote a book with James Gallo on that movie that came out about Jesus and um, the Gnostic kind of thinking. Mm. What was that title? I I think I know what movie you're talking about. Wasn't it... um uh, Jesus Superstar or something like that? I don't think it was that one. But anyway, um, when you get old, you forget stupid things. Now what happens when you're younger and you forget things? <laughs> you know, I'm in trouble. That's, that's even more scary. Um, oh, anyway, I wrote this book with him, and it was a major success. And so my first year of not giving a, getting a salary from the seminary was covered by what I was making on this book. So that was just the start of my functioning outside of any kind of organized group, just on my own. And um, I began to think about my experience in America, tried to analyze what had happened. I came over in 1964, I always say I came over on a different plane than the Beatles. But uh, it was just ironic because I'd been a friend of John Lennon as a young guy, and we both came to the States at the same time, but on different planes. 
and by plain I mean the way of thinking. And uh, it was so sad when someone killed John because apparently he was in a great search for the Lord somehow. And uh, somebody told me when when he was in um, China, was it, or whatever, um, Lennon's wife, what was she? Yoko Ono was a Japanese, mm-hmm. right? I think. Yeah. yeah, he was in Japan, and he met some Christian missionaries, and apparently they led him to Christ. So I don't know much about that story, but I was concerned about him and glad to learn that. But anyway, um, I came in 64, and I was blown away by what I saw. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. This was an amazing Christian nation. When you're a European, you just don't expect to see all the Christian influence in a culture like Christian universities and publishing houses and radio programs like this one and uh, television shows and so on. So I was amazed what I saw. But that was in 64 when I came over and I graduated in 67. But what I didn't see happening around me was the 60s revolution. And so I never realized what the essence of that 60s revolution was. It seemed to me to be a student revolution for free sex. But I later came to understand that what was happening was the invasion of Eastern spirituality. And, um, you know, the sort of statement by Eastern spirituality that God is in everything and God is in you and you are God. And that's what the hippies bought into as well as free sex. So that's what I didn't see. But then I began to understand, as I thought later on, what had happened. And so I started looking in Scripture, oddly, for something that would put what had happened into context. And what I saw was Romans 1, 25, where Paul says, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, so we got truth and lie, the worship of creation, the lie, or the worship of God, the truth. And it struck me for the first time, and I'd been a New Testament scholar for many, many years, that Paul was presenting in that small 24-word text the only two possible ways of relating to the world, either some kind of worship of creation or the worship of God the Creator. And I began to think about that, and I thought to myself, Okay, worship of creation means that there is nothing distinct from us. Everything is the same. Matter and everything else is just part of who we are. And I called that oneism because I realized that when you say that there's a creator, you're actually making an affirmation that there is another kind of personal existence in the universe different than you which then means that distinctions are essential because that fundamental distinction is at the beginning of everything we think about. So I call that twoism. Now, in the modern world, 
modern, just recently, we've come across uh, that same kind of speech, but in a, using different words, namely the binary and the non-binary. So the non-binary is oneism, and the binary is twoism. Binary means two, or you deny that there's an ultimate two-ness in things, the non-binary. So when people say, I'm non-binary, they're talking about their sexuality most of the time. But you can also say that, you can also say that about your spirituality. I'm a non-binary spiritual being. And so I began to think, it's very simple, thinking about life that way. And I began to analyze what would, what was happening in the world around me, in the churches and in philosophy and so on. And that that distinction held up and that the real essence of Christianity was a binary affirmation of God the Creator as a personal, intelligent being to which we owed everything, including our existence. And that's when I started writing books using those terms, oneism and twoism. Amen. Um, how, when you first started developing that, Peter, what, what do you think the reception was in the church? How, how did the church respond uh, to those categories? Because I, when I read your, your books, um, even talking to people today, Peter, uh, there's quite a few Christians who are still uh, sort of behind the eight ball on just how influential, let's say, something like Eastern spirituality is on the West. And so did people resonate with what you were talking about? Um, has it been difficult to convince people of oneism and twoism as a, as a kind of a key paradigm for understanding a biblical cosmology, the biblical worldview? I just want to hear you talk a little bit about how your message was sort of received, and even today, yeah. how is it being received? Well, you know, I'm just one guy, just speaking to people, small groups of people, and I'm not surprised that, you know, that's not gone out to the world as the best possible thing. But I, I must say, when people hear that paradigm... They're often turned on and sometimes radically changed. We had a guy wrote to us the other day and said he was lost in paganism and he read one of my books and it completely transformed him. And I would argue that this is one of the best ways of um, doing evangelism in our day because ultimately, you see, People have rejected God the Creator. I think I have something here. Ah. I don't know whether you've seen this. Yeah, you've actually given me a, a, a stack of those. Oh, good. They're very good. And, you know, it opens up, and then finally the two worldviews show up on either side. Excellent. Now, that methodology is very simple, I think is very appropriate for today's world because the culture has begin, 
begun to reject God the Creator. So that's where we must begin. And of course, the Creator is the Redeemer. Jesus was part of the creative action. So that's not losing the gospel. That's telling people who the Savior is, and He is the Creator. So, you know, getting people back to thinking about fundamental issues is a good thing. And I have a friend who goes to all these pagan groups, uh, and he speaks in oneism and twoism terms, and people are ready to listen and think about the issues. They can ask you what you believe, and you can tell them you're a twoist, and they'll say, what is that? And then you can say to them, and what do you believe? And then you say, that's a oneist view. And they'll say, oh, I never thought that was the case, or I never thought in those terms. And I think you have people being willing to relook at themselves. Now, I've been impressed recently at how much God the Creator has become very evident in our modern lives. You know, the Gospel of John begins, In the beginning was the Word. That's an interesting way of describing what is the origin of everything. Basically, it's saying, in the beginning was intelligence, right? (laughs) Who says that anymore? In the beginning was intelligence. But you know what? People have to agree that that's probably the case. When people, when scholars look at the DNA and its complexity, and that evolution cannot explain how that DNA system ever came into being. Some scholars are no longer Darwinists. They leave Darwin. They don't have any answer. One guy from Yale said, intelligent design is the only thing I can think of, but he didn't become a Christian. But the point is, we have to begin where the Bible begins to make sense of existence, make sense of our universe. And God the Creator, who is an intelligent, personal being, makes sense. And so I think evangelism along those lines has a good possibility of capturing people's thinking in this day and age. I I totally agree. Um, I think that by looking out at our culture and seeing how pagan it is, uh, the culture begins to take on a a bit of a different uh, need where what is needed is the fundamental truth of existence itself, which is the distinction between the creator and the creature. And that's right. uh, Peter, I don't know if I'm sure you've thought of this in revelation chapter 14, The last time that the gospel is mentioned in the Bible, the word gospel, euangelion, it's in Revelation 14, and it's a message of the angel, as you well know, who was flying in the mid-heaven and said that he had the eternal gospel, and he proclaimed it to all who dwelled on the earth. But if you look at the gospel there in that context, 
it, 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 it's kind of unfamiliar to what we would say today is a gospel. It's the gospel of the creator. I'm sure you've thought deeply about this. Yeah, yeah, go I, ahead and grab whatever you want. But I, I actually I have a yeah, I just delivered, I recently delivered a message. I've done this a couple times, but I delivered a message on that very issue that the more pagan a culture gets, the greater the necessity is to preach a message about the Creator. And so I completely agree with you. Good. Amen. Listen, here's a great text from 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's that talking about? In the beginning was the Word, and God created light. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is joining here the teaching on God the Creator with God the Redeemer. And we cannot speak about either one of those things without speaking about them together. So your text in Revelation 14, was yeah, it? Yeah, 14, verses uh, 6 through 9. But uh, that, that passage, you know, as I looked at that, Peter, your, your books and your theology and your, your apologetics and, and your method of oneism and twoism, that had a big influence on me as I read that book because I thought, you know, there it is right there. It's the message of the Creator right there as, as you know, if you take my eschatology, amillennialism, it is a future, a futuristic look at the eschaton, and as humanity gets closest to the eschatological return of Jesus, we are going to be looking at a world that is in a deluge of paganism and needs to be reoriented back to its creator, which is incredible uh, to think That's about. Right. And, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Greg Beale. Yes. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on Revelation— he actually he actually cr- says that exact same thing uh Peter and it was very reaffirming to me as I read the ideas that you're talking about the conclusions I came to as I taught that passage and what GK Beale did for me is he connected Revelation 14 to Acts chapter 13 uh, where once again the Apostle Paul is stressing the idea of the Creator to a pagan culture that believes in all these Greek gods and everything else. And again, um, the Apostle Paul is talking about, I think it's uh, Acts chapter, actually Acts chapter 14, when he's in Lystra, and once again, he's having to tell them about the living God, this is Acts 14, 15, where again the Creator comes back into view as the one who created all things in order to reorient the pagan Greeks to some notion of creation. Acts chapter 14, verse 15. That's right. And that is repeated again in Acts chapter 17, which is kind of the hallmark exactly. for, for apologetics. Right. But So I, I just found... Paul is talking that the Greek intellectuals yeah. 
and he's citing them to prove that there is a creator. So I think, you know, you asked me about the church. I think the church has lost this focus. Mm. It's so much focused upon what Jesus can do for me. Jesus can do a lot for me because he's the Redeemer, but he's also the creator. And I think that failing to see that and making that as a point of our gospel message has hurt the church's message and ministry in our day and age. Yeah. Now, Peter, because you've done so much work in paganism, can you talk a little bit about how I want you to address kind of two things, if you can, even just generally. Uh, but just the influence of paganism on our culture, let's start there. And maybe even the influence of paganism on the church uh, and how you see where your concerns are today. On the culture, I think that inevitably, once you start thinking of God as nature, which is... is the essential notion of paganism, it's the worship of nature. That's why everyone likes to worship Mother God, because Mother God is the womb in which we were all born. And she is simply a spiritual expression of the spirituality of, of, the, uh, of the culture and of nature. Once you've accepted that, you've gotten rid of the idea of a separate God, and then your attempts to discover spirituality will push you away from tourism, away from God who is separate from us, who creates us and saves us, into these kinds of spiritual activities where we try to convince ourselves that we are divine. Also, it allows us to believe against all intelligence that we can make ourselves sexually, that we can grant to ourselves sexual identities that fit with the way we think sometimes and so on. And so we can, exp we can live in the LGBT queer reality, and that's good. And then you can go further than that and investigate what T is, trans, and really actually change your male sex into female sexuality. Now, that's what God did, but people are doing that today. And so all these movements are pushing people away from the very notion of God, the Creator, who made us the way we are. And that, I believe, is the reason why our nation is so pagan in our time that it's gone to that extreme of getting rid of God the Creator because of the influence, the, the invasion of Eastern spirituality. And now we just take over the role of God ourselves. So that's, that's, the, that's the culture. The church, I think, has been influenced more by a sort of a, a desire to want to discover what, what in the Bible and what in the gospel can make me feel good. Mm. And Jesus makes me feel good. So if I can talk about Jesus and 
if I can talk with other people about Jesus and what a great guy he is, that's all I need to do. I need to to share Jesus as a really fine person, obviously a savior and so on. But I think that the evangelical church has bought into that similar problem of rejecting God the creator and just emphasizing Jesus my friend. Yeah. I think uh I think you're absolutely right and I think in the church today uh what you're talking about is something I've done a lot of work in as well. Just just talking about what Michael Horton calls, you know, moralistic therapeutic deism, right? <laughs> and the right. therapeutic that's part of that mystical sort of emotional kind of, uh, you know, uh, emotional ecstasy type of, uh, it's very common, of course, in charismatic Pentecostal circles that you go to church and the reason you're at church is to get some sort of emotional high, some kind of ecstatic experience. and, and, And in that sense, the church has made a therapeutic donation to you. And, and it's, and, and it's the, worth the money. And, and the music in the <laughs> and church. And the music in the church. The modern music in the church is trying to do the same thing. It has to make you want to dance. Mm. And that's why we always have drums. And that's why everything we sing is to a guitar. Because we want to dance. And we want to be joyful. But we don't really dig deep down into what who God is and how we can worship him you know every day mm. i've made this a point of discipline i start my day singing him a hymn to myself mm. and i have the trinity hymnal right here and i sing a hymn every day some of them i don't know some of them i do but it's very interesting to see so many of these hymns that were written 200 300 500 years ago, with that wonderful worship of God, creator and redeemer. And they're so solid, they're not exactly the kind of music we would sing, though we always love things like Beethoven and Handel and so (laughs) on. They drive me nuts. They're so wonderful. But we don't sing those kinds of hymns anymore in churches even though that would put us in touch with Christian men and women who've had the Christian experience and written hymns about that that don't necessarily try to produce this, Jesus is my pal. Mm. Amen. Amen, yeah. and I do, I do think we need to relook at worship in our churches and what it means to bring worship to God, and who is God, the one we worship? Yeah, and so, and Peter, you know, um, there, is, there, are, there are some wonderful exceptions. I think we should mention that because there are some wonderful, wonderful exceptions today, even within the Reformed absolutely. world where uh, there are wonderful musicians and artists now who are reviving the hymns, True. who are bringing these transcendent uh, hymns back to, with a contemporary flavor and things like that, which which oh, I'm fine with, uh, you know. But but when you're talking about e- American Christianity and American evangelicalism at large, it really is cotton candy worship, and uh, it's very sad and it's very shallow. 
Uh, but, but, it, but it definitely shows the influence, again, of the therapeutic, and, and in that way, it kind of the influence of pagan ideas where it's all about you. It is all about you. Right. It's not about God yeah. discovery. It's about your discovery, mm. right? It's not about exploring God and his holiness, transcendence, and truth. It's about realizing yourself and self-expression, yeah, I think you did right. Now, Peter, in your books, uh, I I will tell you, I will I gotta I gotta blame you for one thing today. Um, you you are to blame because sitting on my shelf over there is a big giant book called the Red Book. Ah, I have one too. <laughs> it's a collector over there. <laughs> it's the collector edition <laughs> of of Carl Gustav Jung. And the Red Book, uh, because it is featured prominently in some of your writings, um, and what the reason why you are to blame not only for the, that enormous book, but you were part of the influence that I actually got a library card from SMU in order to check out the collected volumes of Carl Jung, and I've begun working slowly through uh, some of those volumes, like um, Carl Jung's uh, his uh, psych psychology and alchemy and things like that, and he is an absolutely fascinating writer. Uh, he is ex he is a pagan psychologist, and I believe that Carl his father was a, his father was a Lutheran pastor, yep. but a liberal Lutheran. Yes, pastor. that's right, and and. Um, <laughs> Through your books and then reading Carl Jung, I told you one time when we were filming, I told you we're living in a Jungian world, and you said that's right. Can you, for people that have no clue who Carl Jung is, why he's important, and why we're talking about him, can you just kind of inform the listeners about Carl Jung? Oh, it'll be very short, yeah. but I, he died in 1960, I think, or around 59, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, he became the most influential psychologist in the West. And uh, people often reference Freud, but Freud was a student of Jung. Mm -hmm. And they split on a fundamental notion. Freud was only committed to physicality, the sexual urges and so on. And he did an analysis of human beings on the basis of that. Jung analyzed spirituality. And that's why Jung is so important for the spirituality of our day, because he tried to re-express spirituality as the goal of every human being. And the goal of every human being is very interesting was to join the opposites, to to take good and evil and bring them together so that we were no longer slaving ourselves or slaying ourselves with notions of evil, that we had to join good and evil together. And that when we could bring all that together, then we would know relief from our psychological problems. So he was a real oneist. And he hated twoism. And he hated the god of twoism. 
and uh, he's been so important. He was important in um, in Peterson Peterson's life. What's what's oh, yeah, his Jordan first name? Peterson. Jordan yeah. Peterson. Jordan Peterson is, is a Jungian, oh, yeah. but I every time I hear him now, I hear him moving further and further away from Jung. But we'll have to see how that finishes out because he's be coming enamored of the Bible. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he had a great influence on Jordan Peterson, of course, and Jung has had a great influence on many people in the church, many scholars. Uh, I was at Harvard and uh, had a number of friends who became future well-known New Testament scholars, and some of them actually cite Jung as the true expression of Christianity. So all I can yeah. say is Jung wanted to get rid of the doctrines of the Bible, instead produced a spirituality that got rid of distinctions, God and creation and so on, and pushed people into joining the opposites. No, yeah, that's that that's exactly right. I um you know Carl Jung is also responsible for reducing Christianity to what he called an archetype, right? Uh, and that Christianity I, I read out of one of the volumes in his collected works, which I think are like ten or twelve volumes, this massive set of, of books that he did. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Amazing, amazing. And uh but Carl Jung said at one point that Christianity is unrealistic and is not meant for anybody to try to actually live it out, that it's nothing more than an archetype or a symbol of what he called the collective unconscious, which I know you know all about. And, and, and Peter, I'm sorry, but that describes so much of our society today, that Christianity is this ideal kind of spirituality it's not really practical. We're not really actually expected to measure up to Christian standards. But as long as we appreciate it as a religious symbol, an archetype, kind of a, uh, some kind of relic of history and of psychology, that's, that's the real value of Christianity. And, it, and it, it, it instantly kills your religion. It instantly kills your spirituality. That's right. And of course, what else is being pushed today, which is in line with Jung, is the LGBT queer theories. And um, it's very interesting. I did some study on this, and some of the scholars describe homosexuality as androgyny. Now, androgyny is the joining of anair and gune in Greek, male and female. Mm -hmm. So androgyny becomes the goal of sexuality, which is no distinctions, no, no distinctions. Right. And so this view of sexuality fits with the, with the non-binary view of everything, and people call themselves non-binary, don't they? That's how they describe their sexuality. Right. And But androgyny, 
which is another way of describing this um, system, can be descri can describe homosexuality, bisexuality, drag queens, transvestism, transgenderism, and two-spirit people. All those notions can be reflected in the term androgyny, Correct. which is joining male and female together. And that, of course, is the major intention of our world today is to give ourselves that freedom. But what is interesting, my study took me in the ancient world and uh, some of the scholars I read used the term androgyny and uh, this is what they said. Androgyny is a spirit. Oh, yeah, I must say, these studies show that the priests of all the pagans' religions in the world, through time and space, they go back to 2000 BC, uh, <clears throat> the worship of the goddess, that, that the priests in these cults are very often homosexuals. And here's the reason. Androgyny, <clears throat> says this scholar, is a symbolic restoration of the undifferentiated unity that preceded creation, in direct opposition to the Old Testament account of creation. So in the past, in the old world, they were trying bisexuality to destroy the notion of distinctions of God and the creation. And that's cited in a very important book on androgyny as the coincidencia oppositorum, the joining of the opposites. So the non-binary is not brand new. It's very old. And its goal is to undermine the teaching of the Bible that God is distinct from us, that God is the binary so I think we as Christians, we can talk about, you know, Christian spirituality and so on, and how we need to work on worship and so on. But our witness has to take on the movement of sexuality in our culture, which won't be popular. We'll become known as those negative people who are against freedom who don't want to give other human beings freedom. But you see, this is the essence of our turning away from God the Creator. In our sexuality, we turn away from God the Creator. Absolutely. Androgyny is one of those uh, ideas in your books that, again, really um, is kind of eye-opening and enlightening for a lot of people that, for the first time, they're reading about the subject of you know, homosexuality, it's obviously it's a hot button issue in the culture. We see it everywhere, but we hardly ever think of it in terms of spirituality. And so it's very important for us to see that what's going on today in popular culture along the lines of LGBTQ and all these symbols and flags and all of this, th this is this that's a very superficial sort of advertisement of what is the underbelly of paganism. I mean, it really is a pagan foundation that all of this is built upon. And I know that 
uh, for example, in Hindu art, in Buddhist art. Uh, I've been to Buddhist temples, uh, Peter, uh, <laughs> believe it or not. I've actually gone to Buddhist temples to reason with the Buddhist monks and the, and the, uh, the shamans in there and whatnot. And I've been in their temples, and all over the walls is not only just homosexual art, but also pedophilia art. All over the walls of these temples where you have uh, children depicted in uh, a sexual context with adults and androgynous beings all over the walls and things. It's very, very pagan, and it comes to an issue uh, that you also were instrumental in really uh, uh, just uh, pointing me in the direction again of alchemy and how Carl Jung himself was also alchemist and and why alchemy is so important. I mean, maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Well, you know, he, he, he saw the alchemists as manipulating existence and bringing together a joining of everything into one magical system, which he wanted to do himself with all the mystical uh, religions that he studied and so on. So for him, the alchemist did in the past what he was doing in the present. And so... Um, he, I don't think I read anything about him saying, speaking about androgyny. That's the only thing I don't think I read, I read him saying. If you know more about in his book. Yeah, well, yeah, in some of his books on alchemy, he, he speaks about this. And you talk about it, I think, in one of your books where you talk about the anima and animus in every every That's person, right. right? There's the male yeah. and female within all yeah. of us. That all of that goes back to alchemy. Yep. And it's androgyny, as you say. Absolutely right. And you know, I just really if I could just pause for our listeners here, I, I just want to bring up kind of a point that it's so important to read different authors and as you're building your theology, you're building your apologetics, I gotta tell you, you you know, you have somebody like Peter Jones who's bringing a layer and um, a level of thinking on these issues you're not going to find in other apologetics books. Uh, I have, for example, what I think is the best work that I've ever read on the issue of homosexuality, and that's uh, The Bible and Homosexual Practice by Peter Gunyon. And But Peter Gunyon is not going to get into the spiritual, pagan... No. A type of alchemist, Jungian sort of level of the issue of, I mean, fantastic data, really good information, but you have to have the writings of Peter Jones to complement <laughs> the data, the scientific hard data that you find in That's somebody right. like, like uh, Robert Gunyon. So I, I'm just, again, Peter, I'm grateful for your work. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing because it's instrumental. Now, I, I just really quick because I know I know I don't want to take all your time here today, but I, I want to touch on something that's a little bit controversial, but it shouldn't be, and it's in your book. You have a chapter entitled "The Whole," or excuse me, "A Whole or Holy Cosmos," and that is all about eschatology. And uh. and Peter. Um, it's not so much the eschatology that we tend to fight about, right? Uh, 
is there a millennium, the timing of the return, the rapture, these kind of things. But what you're doing in that chapter, in my opinion, is absolutely fundamental because all of these pagan systems, we haven't even talked about, Peter, what I told you in your home with the issue of transhumanism and technology and the eschatology, cosmology and eschatology that these people are envisioning for us and how that directly competes with the biblical eschatology and the cosmology of a new heaven and a new earth as the only true hope and destiny of man. And so... I've just ordered. I've just ordered a book showing the the relationship between between transsexualism and transhumanism. What book is that? I I don't know. My wife ordered it for me and told me today she'd ordered it. <laughs> so you should keep your eye open. No, for that. Uh, what you're going to do <laughs> is hopefully at least shoot me a text message or something. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. Because that's that's no, right no. up my alley. But. That's exactly right. So, so why is it? Imp- why did you feel that that chapter was so important to write? If you remember it, in terms of a holy cosmos. Well, I think the the, the approach I took was um, the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism describes the church as holy in the sense of fullness. Whereas I was trying to define holiness in terms of twoism. Holiness, there are two different words in Scripture, but holiness is distinction. And so when we talk about holy people, we're talking about people who know how to maintain distinctions in the world in which God made. And uh, that's true holiness. It's not, you know, all utter spirituality as such. It's knowing where to make distinctions. And that's what God, that's why God is called holy, because he is separate from us. And in Isaiah 6, you have holy, 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 of course. And then you have in the Lord's Prayer that God is holy. So God is holy because he's separate. Now, I don't know where you want to go in terms of eschatology with this issue, but that was the, if I recall, that was the uh, argument I was trying to make. Yeah, no, absolutely. Matter of fact, if I can quote you here on your book, um, I think it's only apropos to do that, on page 146 uh, of your book, in this chapter, uh, a, a whole or a holy cosmos, you speak about uh, what's what you have just developed in your book as a basically an unholy pagan empire, with which I thought was an amazing way of talking about it. And you said here that this is not, and I quote you, quote, this is not simply a text about personal piety or what we do in Sunday school worship. You say, what can we propose to this new powerful unholy pagan empire other than the coming of an infinitely greater empire, the kingdom of God, in the form of a sanctified cosmos. This grand vision lies behind 
uh, Paul's seemingly innocuous exhortation to the Roman Christians to give to God their bodies in sacrificial and holy living. You were talking there about Romans 12. Yeah. 12. And so I thought that was, that, that to me is going to always be so important uh, because I think we fall short. Peter, if all we're trying to do is give people some sort of alternative therapy, if all we're trying to do is give people an alternative technology, an alternative politics, an alternative uh, entertainment system or education system, but if we're not giving them a comprehensive cosmology and worldview, and I'm sorry, we cannot avoid eschatology in the midst of that. Well, I'm sure you're right, and uh, I'm I'm sure I agree with you that we're looking forward to uh, a world that is holy in the ultimate sense that it is defined by God and is purely defined by God and will be holy in that sense that we we will always be distinct, by the way, in that world. We'll never become God. Uh, God will remain God, and we will we'll remain creatures. So that has to be part of our eschatology as well, I think. But we're looking forward to a world where unholiness is eliminated and where sin and death are eliminated. Mm. Uh, Peter, what would you tell somebody listening to this that is evangelistic and that says, in light of all of this uh truth and this theology about the importance of the creator and the creature, how does that, how does that impact and inform my presentation of the gospel? What would you tell an, evan- a, 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 an evangelistic person? Well, I think what it tells that person is that we need to use all the tools that God gives us in Scripture including his own person as the creator, as well as his person as the redeemer, and that those two things together are a powerful statement as to why we must listen to the gospel. I think if you just give him Jesus the redeemer, and he doesn't know how to raise his kids, and he doesn't know what to do in his job and all that kind of thing, we've given a truncated view of the truth of the Bible. But the Bible is a holistic, in that sense, whole, a full expression of what God wants to give us about our lives as a whole. And uh, I think that that is attractive in evangelism as well. Mm. Oh, that's so good. That's great. Well, Peter, I'm so thankful that we were able to do this short time of uh, discussing and, and fellowshipping and talking over these important subjects. I know that our listeners will find this useful. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, brother, for coming on. I hope this is the first of many that we can do uh, on these important topics. And uh, so thank you so much for being on the program today. For everybody listening to the show, uh, make sure you share the show and uh, make sure you share this episode with friends. Uh, so that uh, they can benefit from the uh, the discussion today. But also be sure and look up Peter Jones on Amazon or wherever. Go to truthexchange, uh, I think it's .com or is it .org? Uh, 
Truth.com. So truthexchange.com is Peter's ministry. Make sure and check that out as well. But I would recommend that you do what I did and pick up your first Peter Jones book. Uh, I got uh, I got the other worldview here, and I got about halfway through this book. I stopped, and then I went to Amazon, and I bought every single Peter Jones book that I could find. I bought all of them. And I hope that you'll do the same <laughs> and uh, that you will get educated as we continue to uh, uh, preach the gospel and stand upon the truths of Scripture in a pagan world. And may the Lord give us the strength to do that. So anyway, another episode of Christ and Kingdom. Thank you guys so much for listening. Till next time, uh, God bless. God bless.